Revelation chapter 20. There's several things in here that are rather interesting and, and uh, we're going to take the next few weeks to work through them. The first three verses, if you look at uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to come back to this at a different time uh, because really in verses 7 through 10, we also deal uh, with Satan and the judgment at the end of the millennium, and so I'm going to do that all at one shot. Uh, but Satan in verses 1 through 3 is said to be bound, and obviously he is defeated. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. What's notable here, obviously, is that Satan is defeated. We saw that the Antichrist is slayed with the breath of his mouth. The Lord comes back, rescues Israel. They have a national repentance. They have a national revival. But also, they are saved physically from the Antichrist and his armies. And the Lord comes back along with all of us and the armies of God, which is probably the Angelicos, probably the church, may even be other armies in the sense of the different groups of believers throughout history. But in the midst of that time, the Antichrist is slayed immediately. Satan is defeated. And as a result, he is chained. He is thrown into the abyss, which is not the lake of fire. The abyss, or the pit, if you will, is a special holding place in Hades itself where he's going to be held for a thousand years. And we're going to find this out and we're going to look at this later on over the next couple weeks where Satan is released after the thousand year millennium in order to deceive the nations. And at that point, the Lord finishes things off. And uh, Satan is then thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment takes place, etc. The second thing that's really brought out in chapter 20, which we're going to take some time on uh, at a different moment, but the millennium, the millennium. Now, in this chapter, which is really ironic, this is a thousand-year period of time, all of Revelation has been in effect about a seven-year, the predominant uh, writings have been about the seven-year period of time called the tribulation, the great tribulation. And the thousand-year reign is hardly addressed at all. And I think the reason for that is pretty clear because so much of it is addressed in the Old Testament. There was no need to really go through it all over again. So we're going to take a, a little bit of time and look at the millennium. What is the millennium about? Why the millennium? Who's going to rule and reign? And what are the Jews going to be doing? What are uh, Gentile Christians or the church uh, going? What are we going to be doing? And so why, why the millennium? And what's going to happen there? It's an amazing teaching. It's an amazing truth. Life here on planet Earth is going to change with the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning physically from Jerusalem. In verses 11 through 15, you see the great white throne judgment. And we get this at the end of the millennium where the great white throne judgment takes place, the second resurrection, if you will, where all the dead who are unbelievers are brought before the throne of God and the book is opened and the books. We're going to take a little bit of time to work through that. Folks, that's, a, that's an amazing moment in time. And I got to tell you, I don't know how Revelation has impacted you. For me, it has just been a reminder over and over and over again of the security of our future because of what Christ has done for us. The fact that we have the opportunity to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ daily and experience him, know him, grow in him, follow him. 
And then all these people around us who do not have hope and are headed towards certain things that are almost unspeakable. We have the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the truth of the gospel of grace. And the question is, how is God using us as we avail ourselves to him in order to proclaim the truth of the reality of who he is, what he's done, and what each and every person has the opportunity of experiencing by grace through faith in Christ? It's essential. So this morning, we're going to focus in on the resurrections. And what do I mean by that? Well, verses 4 through 6, we get this picture, and we're given the idea of a resurrection, and John literally calls it the first resurrection. And what does he mean by that? What is the first resurrection? What is the order of the resurrection? Does it all happen at one time, or is it staged out? Who is being resurrected? It's very clear, as John writes this, blessed are those who are a part of the first resurrection. And folks, I would suggest that all believers are going to be a part of the first resurrection. Not necessarily at the same time. It's in order. It's staged out. But blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, and if you can stand and say, I know personally the Lord Jesus Christ because I gave him my life. I received him into my life. I believe that he is Lord and Savior. And as a result, I have been saved, not because of my works, but because of what Christ did at the cross for me and what he has promised to me when I have asked him to save me. Then you are blessed. You are part of the first resurrection. So we're going to look at primarily verses 4 through 6 this morning. And in this passage, in these verses, there are three primary groups that are reflected in this passage. First are those who are sitting on thrones judging. Look at Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 in the beginning part of that verse. He says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Now who is this? Because we immediately jump from the whole idea of uh, Satan being bound for a thousand years and then at the end of this thousand years he's going to be released and we immediately see, I saw thrones. Then I saw thrones. What is he speaking to? Well, in the between time, at the end of the tribulation, prior to the millennium starting or beginning, John is given certain things that are going to take place. Satan is obviously going to be bound and he's going to be thrown into the abyss or the pit, which is a special holding place in Hades. And then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Who is the they? Who is he speaking of? Well, I would suggest it appears to be the church saints or representatives, at least, of the church. It appears to be the church sitting on the throne of Christ. It appears to be the church who has already been resurrected, who has already been glorified, received glorified bodies, now sitting on the throne of God, or the thrones, and being given the opportunity, the ability to judge. In the Lord's message to the church of Laodicea in chapter 3, 
He promises to those who overcome, and he says this in verse 21 of Revelation 3, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It appears that John immediately is given a picture of the church who's already in heaven, who's already a part of this heavenly scene, already glorified, already purified, the bride of Christ, all blemish has been removed, white and clean and fine linen, now sitting on the thrones and now judging. The second group of people that are spoken of here are the tribulation saints who are martyred during the seven-year period of time, having been faithful to the Lord. And if you continue in verse 4, it says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These individuals are clearly those who have come out of the tribulation. They have been faithful. They have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. It says that they had not worshipped the beast. Excuse me, I got a cough. <laughs> These colds. Ah. What did my father-in-law, I used to watch him do this and he said, it's just real. It's just the way it is. I'm sorry you don't have bottles of water but I'm thankful for those who provide them for me. And I may need a cough drop. Oh, I love colds. I really do enjoy winter, but I hate colds. Don't you? Thank you. I appreciate that. Was that okay? Was that smoothly done? Was that all right? Are you, are you good? Are you still with me? Are you still focused here? Okay, amen. Go from, amen, well, we won't go there. <laughs> uh, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Why were they killed? Why were they martyred? When we talk about witnesses, we're talking about those who are faithful to acknowledge the reality of what Christ has done in our lives. Here, he's very clear because of their testimony, their true witness of what Christ had done in their lives, the salvation that God has provided, which is by grace through faith, and because of the word of God. In other words, they were true to the word of God. They stood on the promises of God. Folks, that's an amazing truth. Regardless of what you're about to go through, regardless of maybe what you're going through or what you're about to go through, the reality of it is we can stand assured and firm on the promises of God, the word of God. The truth of the matter is these individuals went through these horrific times of persecution and they stayed true to the witness of Christ and what God had done in their lives through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the word of God. And it goes on, it says they had not worshipped the beast or his image. In other words, they didn't participate in false worship. They understood that worship in Christ alone is essential is primary, and they didn't waver off of that, even when they faced death and were killed for their faith. They did not receive the mark 
of the beast on their forehead or their hand, the mark of 666. They didn't receive that. In other words, they didn't participate in the social uh, sphere, environment, the political sphere, the economic sphere. They didn't participate in the religious sphere of the Antichrist. They remain true to Christ through it all. And as a result, they were beheaded. When we talk about who these people are, they are the saints of the tribulation. And it says very clearly that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What an incredible truth. Now here he's talking about the resurrection. He's not saying that they somehow uh, were dead and asleep and they didn't understand what was going on. What we know is earlier in Revelation, some of the souls who had been beheaded and who had been martyred were under the altar and they were crying out to God, uh, when are you going to judge? When are you going to bring justice for what we've been through? So their souls are, they're obviously a part of the heavenly scene. We saw this later in chapters 18 and 19 where the great uh, multitudes were there praising God because of what was going on. Here what he's speaking to specifically is their resurrection and how they are going to reign with Christ during the millennium. I like what the Grace New Testament commentary says about these two groups uh, of believers John next saw two groups of people. The first group, those seated on thrones to whom judgment was committed, are those who will reign with Christ during the millennium, who have already been resurrected and glorified, church-age saints at the rapture. The second group, those who had been beheaded, consists of the tribulation martyrs. They lost their lives as a result of their witness to Jesus. They were not afraid to confess him before men and for the word of God, which they obeyed rather than men. So you have the church being represented, those sitting on thrones, and then you have the tribulation martyrs, the saints who were faithful to the Lord throughout the tribulation, even though it cost them their lives. The third group are the rest of the dead who are not resurrected until after the millennium. If you look at verse 5 in chapter 20, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then to me, this is a little bit confusing in the English, the way that this has been worded. This is the first resurrection. And it sounds like what he's talking about is the rest of the dead who didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed as part of the first resurrection. And that's not at all what John is saying. What he's referring back to is those saints who are already in heaven, the resurrection that has taken place before the millennium is the first resurrection. The second resurrection is actually of all the unbelievers from human history now coming before the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. That's the second resurrection. The second resurrection takes place for all unbelievers after the thousand-year reign of Christ is over. Walverd puts it this way, as the context which follows indicates the first resurrection contrasts with the last resurrection or the second it is first in the sense of before, prior. All the righteous, regardless of when they are raised, take part in the resurrection, which is first or before the final resurrection of the wicked dead at the end of the millennium. What an interesting moment. All believers from human history, 
Old Testament saints, as well as the church, as well as the martyred tribulation saints, the saints that have walked through this tribulation, all believers from human history will be resurrected prior to the millennium and will be a part of the millennial kingdom and experience the blessings of the millennial kingdom. All unbelievers of human history will be held in Hades waiting till the end of the millennium for the great white throne judgment where they will be judged and then thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Folks, blessed are those whose part is in the first resurrection. There's a reason John absolutely hammers that home. In verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the word blessed. Makarios, right? The Beatitudes. We see uh, blessed used throughout the New Testament in many different ways. In fact, Paul, writing about the Lord Jesus Christ himself, said that Jesus is the blessed one. The blessed one. The only one of his kind. Fully blessed. Here, what we have is blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. What does blessed mean? Makaros means filled to all the fullness of God. Satisfied in God alone. Blessed. Filled to the fullness of God. Experiencing God to the fullness, satisfied in nothing else other than God. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. The word holy simply means set apart, meaning pure unto God. Again, we're talking about those saints prior to the millennium, all the saints from human history now being resurrected within the first resurrection and serving the Lord throughout the millennium, blessed, filled to the fullness of God, satisfied in Christ alone, in God alone, holy, set apart unto him, pure. First John 3, 1 through 3, a promise to the church, when we see him, we're going to be just like him. What a beautiful truth that is, because not only uh, are we in Christ positionally made right with him, but one day when we see him face to face, we are going to be made Pure. In other words, even the stain of sin is going to be removed from us because we're going to receive a glorified body, all the spot, all the blemishes, all the imperfections that are a part of our human story is going to be gone. We look at the first, first Corinthians chapter 3, the Bema Seat of Christ, and we look at the way in which God tests the work by fire. Anything that is not out of faith, anything that is not for Christ will be burned up and removed. Everything that was out of faith, everything that was done by Christ in and through us as we yield to him will remain. What a beautiful truth. The word part here is an interesting word. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Well, the word part literally means to share in. Now, what are we talking about? Well, probably what he's saying here is not simply that you're saved, 
but rather that you have an inheritance. In other words, that you have participated with God in such a way while walking on this earth to receive an inheritance from the Lord. And it very well may be an allusion to rewards. It very well may be an allusion to the idea that as we rule and reign with Christ, we will have different levels of responsibility based on how we walked with God faithfully today. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part, who has an inheritance, a share in the first resurrection. He says, over these, the second death has no power. And the idea simply there is he's stating a negative in order to accentuate the positive. We are so far removed from the second death because of what Christ has accomplished for us that it's not even comparable. The second death, which is the lake of fire, has no authority over us at all whatsoever. But instead, we will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What a beautiful picture, folks. What an amazing salvation we have. How are we walking today in light of what we're learning about with regard to our future? How does it compel us with regard to the love of Christ to say, Lord, here's my life. Use it in whatever way you choose today because tomorrow's going to be that much better. We know that all unbelievers and fallen angels will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death all who do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. In verse 14 of chapter 20, this is stated, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's unimaginable, folks. I, 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 it's hard enough to picture eternity where there's no sin, where it's totally good, where you're in an absolute perfect relationship with the Lord, walking within him, never second-guessing whether or not you've heard correctly or done the right thing, never worried about how you're treating one another or being treated. You never have to have those thoughts again. It's, it's hard enough to imagine that. I'll tell you what's really hard is to imagine being separated from God eternally in the lake of fire. That's indescribable. If that doesn't break our hearts, folks, I, I don't know what would. Those who have been faithful and obedient to the Lord will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We'll serve the Lord. How we're going to do that, we'll get into that a little bit in the millennium. But I do believe there are levels of rewards, just like there are levels of punishment. I believe that God is faithful to reward when we say yes to him, when we walk with him, when we experience what he alone is able to do, not only in our lives, but also through our lives. And he will reward accordingly. So what is the first resurrection? How do we understand what John is speaking of? Wearsby puts it this way, the phrase general resurrection is not found in the Bible. On the contrary, the Bible teaches two resurrections. The first is of the saved and leads to blessing. The second is of all the lost and leads to judgment. The first resurrection is of believers only. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 and following, this is such a beautiful passage. This is the resurrection passage. And uh, Paul speaks to this very clearly. 
In verse 20, he says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then he says this in verse 23, But each in his own, what? Order. Order. So in other words, the first resurrection is not just a one-time moment. It has an order to it where different either individuals and or groups of people are resurrected in their correct God-ordained order. Clearly, in verse 23, Paul goes on, he says, Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ is the first fruits. He's the first to resurrect from the dead and have a glorified body. How important is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to us? In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians and verse 12, Paul writes this, If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You know, Tim announced Gary Habermas is going to be with us in a few weeks. And I want to tell you something, folks. This is going to be a profound moment in my mind. He's probably the foremost scholar on the resurrection, the historicity of the resurrection. It's not just something that we have, you know, in the sense of a belief system that we pass on to one another. It's not just something that we look at and, and all kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, that's really important. It is a historical fact. I'll never forget studying with Spiro Zodiades at his home, and he looked at me the one day, and he said, why was Paul so bold? Why was Paul so bold? And I was trying to come up with all kinds of things in my mind and, you know, try to make it sound like I was answering in just a really sophisticated, uh, educated way. And he looked at me, he said, because of the resurrection, he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the issue, folks. Did Jesus Christ rise again from the dead or not? And that question and how we answer that changes everything. If we really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and we have placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin to receive from him what he alone could accomplish on our behalf, folks, the promise with that is irrevocable and that is that you will be saved. All humanity needs this message, the gospel of God's grace. There's no question about that. Do we really believe that all humanity needs this? 
that only Christ can save, that the resurrection is true, that it's a fact. How are we being motivated by the Lord himself because of what he's done for us to simply be able to say to the Lord, I'm available, use me in whatever way you choose. There are people all around us that never have even heard the gospel and they're living in the United States of America, which is unthinkable. There are people all over the world. John Ruckley gave us a wonderful report of his trip yesterday. There are people all over the world and they are desperate for the truth of the the Lord's grace, of the gospel, of the true teaching of scripture with regard to who they are in Christ, what God's expectation for them is, which is to simply surrender, and how God in us and through us is able to accomplish his work and the purposes that he has. And of course, there are people all over the world who need hope. They need hope because of being separated from Christ, because of sin. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is essential. You know, three weeks after Dr. Habermas is here with us is Easter, and I'm gonna challenge you this year. I haven't done this a whole lot. Maybe I should have done it more, maybe not, whatever. But I'm gonna challenge you to prayerfully consider who is God uh, putting on your heart to bring to this place to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how are we being used of the Lord in order to reach out to our neighbors, in order to say, Lord, here we are, Would you allow me the opportunity? Would you give me the privilege of presenting Christ to the people around me in my very own neighborhood? How is it that we're walking day by day, moment by moment, understanding that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is an absolute certain fact that we have been saved, that we could declare the goodness of where we're headed with assurance, with absolute certainty, but we are not willing to speak about it with the people that we run into almost every day. We have become so politically correct that before we even say a word, we're already worrying about their response and offending them. Friend, understand where they're headed without Christ and how with boldness are we walking in Christ, in his power and in his strength to simply express his love and what he has done at the cross for the people around us. So the first resurrection is of believers only. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, Paul makes it very clear there is an order to the resurrection, to this first resurrection. Christ is the first fruit. He is the first. In Revelation 1.5, it is said, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. That phrase is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the firstfruit, he is the firstborn of the dead. In Colossians 1.18, Paul writes, he's also head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Think about that. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful truth that really is. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us a picture of what he has promised that we will experience. His glorified body, the resurrection from the dead. Well, secondly, I believe that the rapture of the church will take place sometime prior to the tribulation, the seven-year period. And so the order is Christ, the first fruits, and then the rapture of the church, which includes the resurrection of the dead church saints and the translation of the living 
church saints. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 and 52 state this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 and following where Paul writes this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There is an order to the first resurrection, Christ the first fruit. The second order is the church, the dead in Christ, rising again first. And then we who remain will be caught up together with them in the air and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. What an amazing moment, folks. The third resurrection And this may not be the third, it may be 2B, (laughs) I don't know. But the resurrection of the two witnesses that occur in the great tribulation. In Revelation 11, 11, it says, After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. Remember, the two witnesses had been killed and they'd been left in the street to lie dead, their bodies decaying in the streets for three days, three and a half days. And after the three and a half days, it said that the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. I love that. Stood on their feet. You know, the word resurrection simply means to stand up again. I love that, to stand up again. And that's the picture of the two witnesses. There's an order to the first resurrection. Well, the other groups that come, I'm not sure exactly which comes first. I don't know if the Old Testament saints are resurrected first or if the tribulation saints are resurrected first. I'm gonna go with the Old Testament saints because they've been waiting longer. How's that? Is that theologically okay? Can we say that? I think Abraham's going to have his moment. (laughs) Does that make sense? So Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and there's other passages on this. But the angels come to Daniel, and he begins to explain to him the end times and the different things that are taking place. We don't see this uh, specifically stated in Revelation But in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and following, it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What the angels simply explaining to Daniel is there's going to be a time of tribulation for your people and when it is over, those whose name are found in the book 
will be resurrected. The other ones are going to have to wait just like all unbelievers from all human history until the end of the millennium where the second resurrection takes place and all the unbelievers from human history have to come and appear before the great white throne of the Lord Jesus Christ and be judged. The Old Testament saints prior to the millennium, right after the end of the tribulation in that time period between will be resurrected and they will receive their glorified bodies. Then, perhaps finally, I'm not sure, then the resurrection of the martyred dead of the tribulation will occur. And this will take place soon after Christ comes back in order to rescue the Jewish people. Revelation 24b speaks to that. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You catch that last part? They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They stood up again. They were resurrected. So the first resurrection takes place prior to the millennium. All the saints from human history in their right order will be resurrected in order to be glorified, in order to serve the Lord during the millennial reign. What an incredible picture, folks. How important is the resurrection? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the essential aspect of the resurrection. He is the first fruits. He's the firstborn from the dead. And Paul makes it clear as we looked at that without the resurrection, we are to be most pitied. Why are we even here today? It doesn't matter. But praise God, he did rise again from the dead. He defeated our enemy, which is death as a result of sin. And he is the one who is able to accomplish the salvation where we have the opportunity of being blessed and holy and having a share, a portion, an inheritance in the first resurrection. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you personally know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you settled that? Have you settled that? Friend, there's, there's no more important question in your life than that one. Do you personally know the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about knowing about him. There's a lot of people that have certain different aspects or things that they know about Jesus Christ. I'm talking about knowing him personally. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because the truth of the matter is the Lord loves you. The Lord went to the cross for you. The Lord wants you to have a personal relationship with him. And the question is, how does that take place? And I would suggest it's very simple. What Paul told the Philippian jailer is one of the greatest statements in scripture for us. And it is simply this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Folks, you can experience rescuing, salvation, forgiveness of sin, you can be restored into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How? By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Do you know that you know that you know that these things that we've even looked at this morning have been promised for you, that you will experience this, not because of good works, not because of your ability, not because of anything that you could do uh, in order to get God to do something for you or to try to pay him back for it, but rather because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did alone. Do you believe that? And believers, 
Are we walking in that? Day by day, moment by moment, we're saying, Lord, here's my life. Use it in whatever way that you choose. I've heard the statement often, we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. And I understand that to a degree. But folks, when you begin to understand, when I begin to understand that we're headed to heaven, it changes the way that we are walking on this earth. When we understand that there's coming a day we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the works, we're going to give an account of how did we walk by faith in Christ? How did we say yes to him in the midst of our lives and all the different circumstances? How are we walking faithfully with him? How are we experiencing God? How has God been transforming us as we've said yes to him? How is God being revealed through it? We're going to give an account for that. Folks, it ought to change the way we walk today. We can enjoy the good things of this earth. We know that. But we ought never to lose sight of our purpose, of why God has us here, of how God desires not only in us but through us to reveal his love, to make himself made known to people all around us who have no hope, they have no purpose. They're facing an eternity separated from God. How are we walking in light of these truths?